Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Bunk Bar in Portland, Oregon. Team Human is a global movement of people who understand that being human is a team sport, not a competition, but a divine collaboration. No matter how atomizing the algorithms driving our communications technologies, we commit to seeing the humanity in our adversaries and other people not as the obstacle to our well-being, but as the source of any and all meaning we're going to find. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing, playing for Team Human today, lifelong activist, warrior, and witch, Blade Spence. And then, writer, educator, professor, and the author of the blog and now book, Slow Media, Jennifer Rausch. Human beings are not the problem, we are the solution. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and you're on Team Human. I've been uh, watching TV on, on my little tour. I'm watching more of the late night news cable than I, than I have been. What it's made me realize is that politics, uh, contrary to a lot of what I've been saying over the last few years, Politics is still in the television age. It's still TV. This is not digital. These are not digital candidates. This is not digital politics at all. This is TV. And where it made, became resoundingly clear for me was I was watching um, Amy Kobachar. She did this town hall on CNN. And I even just love the expression town hall. You know when those town halls started was during the Clinton-Bush uh, Clinton election. They did a town hall Oprah style debate. 
And it's where Clinton actually became Clinton. He did this thing where he crossed the fourth wall and he's not feeling your pain. And he did this whole thing. So I was watching a, a CNN's town hall, right? Which is not town hall. It's not a town hall. It's a, it's a, it's a set, right? It's a set in a studio. It's a, it's a stage that they make into a town hall. And it was um, Don Lemon was hosting Amy, poor Amy. And I know she's other problems right now, but um, and and that's because what we don't like women to yell at people or something. Um, that's another story. I'm not against her as a candidate. What I'm against is what happened to her that night. Looked to me like she was just owned by Don Lemon. She was owned. It was like when she should sit, when she should stand, when she should like cross toward the audience. He was kind of guiding her a little bit and nodding and helping him, like like he was her real-time media coach helping her do this thing. And what this thing was, was not sharing her issues or perspectives. That would be too digital or real or substantive. What he was doing was helping her perform for television. So what did that mean? It meant you've got to take an example from your own life that had adversity to it, and then she thought about it and, and what it meant and how she integrated it and then how she fought and why it worked and that's why for the American people, I'm gonna do blah, blah, blah. And every single story had this same like television shape. And I was thinking, you know, Clinton was so the best at doing that. He was the best. Clinton was the Spielberg of television manipulation. How to pace the story. I mean, Reagan was great, but he was more like the, the, the Frank Capra sort of of it. It was a different era. It was more like movie, you know, the, you know like the Jode at the end of, uh, uh, um, you know, the Steinbeck. Um, which one is that? Oh, Grapes of Wrath. You know, oh, come on, we're going to do it. Oh. Um, it was different. It was, it was not quite as television. You know, Clinton was perfect, you know, mash Oprah Donahue era television with that... That, that, that heart, there's that romance, there's that thing that, that mm, about, about TV. And the fact that we can see it so clearly now is not just because Amy's not a good television actor. I think the part of the fact that we can see it so clearly, that's what it means to be living in an emerging digital environment. That we can start to pull back and see TV as... TV as a medium. You know, McLuhan said that, that Marshall McLuhan, the big media theorist dude from, from Canada, he said that the, the one medium becomes the content of the next medium. So that's why television is now the content of the internet. So we, you know, what do we do with the internet? We watch Netflix, so we watch porn videos, we watch, you know, whatever. It's television. So television, it's not TV anymore, though. It's TV as content. Think about what even the remote control, I used to talk about this in the early 90s, what the remote control did to television. But you don't have to sit there and watch the rising action and be manipulated by the commercial, the storyteller. You can use the remote and get out of that imposed state of tension, that, that imposed state of, of narrative anxiety that the producer's putting you through and go to the other next station, next station. And you know you can get back around the dial in time to find out whether the trial and law and order is gonna work out in their favor or not and still get the score of the game and still watch this. So with a remote control in a digital age, you're no longer watching television. You're watching the television. 
You're watching the TV. And that's the environment that favors Jerry Springer, that favors shows that you watch how they're put together, that favors reality TV. You know, the first reality TV I used to watch was just the, the, the monitor in the lobby of the building because the cable went up and you could see what was happening down there. That's reality TV. Right? But what is reality TV, what do they do now? They take footage, you take video, and then you edit it together to tell some kind of a story. And whoever edits the story gets to tell the story. Just like whoever can put the right words on the internet meme gets to name the meme. Right? What are those? Are those poor migrant workers coming up through Mexico? No, they're terrorists. You know, and whatever tag you can put on it then, then sort of labels the, labels the thing. But reality TV is this, it's kind of a hybrid form right? where, where it will always win. It will always beat out the narrative. It's like, do you want to watch the story about this person striving towards a goal and meeting adversary? Car crash! Right? This girl has values. She's thinking about her family. And her jaws attack! What are you going to watch? Right, so what are we going to watch? Amy Klobuchar or some, some town hall person using the old Clinton playbook of how television works? Right, or are we going to watch a crazy candidate calling her a God knows what he's going to call her? You know, Pocahontas light or something. He'll come up with something. And they're all worried. They're all shaking now. And CNN, bless their hearts, they feel like, well, we cost America that last election because we're so addicted to the money, we couldn't help but show the, the horror show and elect this man president. So now we're going to do everything in our power to retrieve the golden age of television, when television was about reasonable characters with heart, you know, candidates we could love. But that won't really work. You know, CNN cannot redeem itself. It will fail. It will fail at that. The future of TV, if there is one, you know, is, is what we just saw, the kids from Sunrise going into Dianne Feinstein's office and saying, yo, support this thing or else. It was a really interesting moment. You know, because then she, they, you know, these kids, they basically wanted her to sign on to the Green New Deal. And, and she says, well, you know, I've got my plans, I'm working, I'm trying, very TV era in some ways. I'm, I'm trying, let's be reasonable here. And they're like, no, just sign it now. Just sign it. We're going to die. Sign the thing. And she's like, you can't, just, you can't just come in here and take it or leave it. You can't just say, what did she say? Something like, you know, you can't just, you can't just say, you know, uh, do it or else. Or else we're going to leave. Or else we're not going to vote for you. You can't just make uh, ultimatums like that. But in a certain way, you can. In a certain way, in the digital age, you can't. There is no such thing as resistance in the digital Resistance is from the electronic age. Resistance is attenuation, right? It's the volume control, it's that. In digital, you don't, it's on or off, yes or no. In digital, you can walk in, you can oppose, right? So that's what they're doing, they're coming in, no. No, we oppose, but they're doing it with the video on. They're doing it on the internet's version of TV. And they're outing Feinstein. They're embarrassing her. They're using the medium to embarrass her. And I don't know. I, I, I'm yay, but. Yay, but. Yay, they're opposing. Yay, they're speaking truth to power. But 
I want to be careful. Are, is this the new performance? Is this the new digital era, our style of Trump TV? We're going to just uh, humiliate. What, what, what are any of these shows about? Humiliate the person. You know, it's a, what was that one called? Joe Millionaire? Remember that reality show? Joe Millionaire was a show where all these women compete for this guy they think is going to be a millionaire. And then they find out after they've already, like, given him oral sex and done all this stuff, they find out when he asks them to get married, whatever, and he's like, uh, I'm actually an auto mechanic. And they zoom in on their faces, and you're thinking, oh, she gave him head, you know? Um, and what is that set up to do? It's just to humiliate these people. So what does this do? The, the camera, when you go into Feinstein's office, it's slightly, it's slightly cynical. And if this is politics of this next age, although I understand there's a certain progress in it, we are again reduced to the spectators. We're still watching television on the computer, but we're watching television. But that's not the true age of digital politics. Digital politics, these are the digits. So digital politics would be my digits. It's hands-on. Digital politics is actually real-world politics. That's what I've been screaming about with Team Human. Real, real digital age politics will happen locally. It will happen with you finding other people. And yeah, you can go work on a campaign. You go work on a campaign for some candidate, but you work on it human to human, locally, with other actual people. You know, that's real organizing, not watching. The, the team human era of politics is going to be when the town hall is not something you watch on TV, but is a hall in your town that you actually occupy. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from Bunk Bar in Portland, Oregon, the place where people go when Seattle proves too much like San Francisco. <laughs> Our first guest tonight, Blade Spence, is a lifelong activist, warrior, and witch, a change agent who's worked extensively with Starhawk and the Reclaiming Collective in the US and Canada, an alum of Apple Multimedia Lab, founding partner of Wired Magazine, senior designer at Paul Allen's Interval Research, and an operative of the revolution, working to dismantle the patriarchy and predatory capitalism from within the belly of the beast. Welcome to Team Human. Thank you. Oh, hey. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Portland. I, I just have to say I love that you brought in the, the digits because our household is, is giant fans of Linda Berry, if there are any oh. illustrations, <laughs> right? The original digital device. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she calls it. Oh, really? Yeah. This is. Yes. It's great. Yeah. It's great. So there's so many stories I would like to hear, but, but you and I met in the early in the 90s, day. you know, back in the day when, I mean... Well, we were kind of from different tribes. I was in the Mondo 2000 tribe right. of, of right. you know, <laughs> culture, you know, cyberpunk, psychedelic culture hackers, the sort of the Eric Gellickson uh, uh, era of virtual reality that you cobbled together with a billiard <laughs> ball and uh, <laughs> glasses and stuff. And you were at Wired Magazine, which to me was the big, scary, 
business place, you know. We, we were two floors up in a condemned warehouse in San Francisco. Mondo was on the ground floor, and we were up that crazy, dangerous staircase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was, you know, it seemed like, well, Louis Rossetto and these guys. So Wired Magazine, although it was kind of cool and weird and crazy, um, and it, it quickly became the, the, the spokes zine or whatever of the digital revolution, yeah, yeah. it ended up taking a real turn, I mean, partly due to its found, founder, Louis Rossetto's deeply libertarian roots, into, like, becoming a business magazine. Yes, techno-libertarian business magazine, yes, which was not at all what um, most of us, well, I would say, like, maybe 50%, I keep looking at my husband, yeah. um, that's how we met. Uh, it was probably... There were plenty of us who were not on that team. And I mean, I was enough of a naive youngster at that point that I wasn't even sure what libertarianism was. Right. I remember thinking, oh, okay. And then when I found out that Lewis, who was, um, who was our editor-in-chief, was also part of the Young Republicans in undergrad, I was like, <gasps> right. you know, like raised by non a non-American family of socialist activists, like radicals, that was just like, oh my gosh. And then I remember Paulina Borsuk giving me the lowdown on here's what libertarianism is and just thinking, oh my gosh. Yeah, but it did well, turn weird. into this is a, a weird. It's a weird though that we as college graduate, relatively you know, educated, smart people walked into yes. the digital <laughs> revolution without, without having read Marx. Or, yeah. <laughs> Or if we had, without knowing that he was relevant to this yes. situation. Yes. You know, and, and so yeah. we were, yeah, yeah, cyber. <laughs> we were going to change the world. Right. Like, before that was a thing in Silicon Valley. We really were, like... We're gonna we're gonna do this. The Gaia hypothesis was was, yes. was alive and well, and we were gonna hardwire the 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 neurons of the global brain together and yes. have one big civilization wide rave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which was also some of the difference in our tribes. We were the rave tribe upstairs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what happened? Why? why? Oh man. And how, how, I guess, how did, how did Wired become so very central to the whole thing? How did they get to claim the story? Gosh, that is such a good question, Doug. Um, there's a story in terms of how, um, I've thought about this so often, in terms of how did, how did that happen? Was it always set up that way? I remember um, being so naive as to think that the and this is so basic, you know, in terms of a, an un, uh, unevolved youngster to think that, oh, everybody I'm working with is thinking the same way I am and we're all going to subvert the dominant paradigm and, you know, this is going to be this wonderful tool. And I know for me, what I was most passionate about is, you know, I was so aware of the juncture that we were at culturally and that we are at a crossroads. And at this point, that's 20, 25 years ago. Right. 20, 25 years ago, being acutely aware of the crossroads we were standing on and thinking, okay, we need to get people educated. We need to get people loaded up with a perspective on what is this 
tsunami wave that is about to break over us. Right. Well, that's and what at Lewis this point, it has it. broken over right. us. Right. I mean, Lewis called it that in the first issue. He said, "There's a tsunami coming." Oh, the Bengali coming, tank you know? typhoon. Yeah. yeah. And it was a little, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, right. A, a little bit of fear-based, but I mean, to put it in context, I mean, almost to forgive us our our ignorance at the time. Nobody believed us that the internet was right. going to happen. If you were involved in right. computer technology as a kid in the 80s or early 90s, your parents thought you had just decided to be a, a Dungeons and Dragons player as your career. <laughs> this stuff, know what I mean? It was like, you're just crazy. You're just, you know, and to be fair, we were scraping peyote off the cactuses at night and going into right. work blazed in the morning and looking at fractals all day. Um, so they were kind of right, but um, but we knew something was coming that people yeah. would be using email, that this yes. internet would happen, yes. and and that the, AI would happen, right? And then and there the machine were these, learning would happen, and there were grown-ups yes. there, you know, whether yes. it was you know Lewis and Kevin Kelly and Nicholas yes. Negroponte, yes. these were Stuart grown-ups, Brand. the first yes. grown-ups who said yes, this is real, yes, it's going to happen, yes, and we accepted them as you know, natural leaders as parents. We transfer yes. parental authority onto them. And Thank you. That's a beautiful way of phrasing it. And, and I think that is definitely part of what happened uh, with me personally. And then realizing as things happened in the Valley and the, the magazine became a business, right? Because when we started, it was a... It was not a business. It was skunk works. I mean, like mm. I said, we were in a condemned warehouse, broken out windows, it, you know, nothing in the building to code. Um, we, we were working on our own machines. We were sleeping in the warehouse. We were, you know, not showering. We were, you know. Right, this is back before like, south of market in San Francisco. was $1,000 a square foot. Exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. This was like maybe $3 a square foot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you get paid yeah. for being there. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, and working without pay. I mean, this was like a, pa it was like, no, we're going right. to build a way that we can help people understand what's coming so that we can make a conscious choice as a community, as a global community, as a connected community, we can make a conscious choice of what direction we want to go. How do we want to leverage this technology for the powers of good? That was my naivete of like, oh, we're all on the same, we're all on the same ship and we're, our sextant, we're going on the same sextant. And it's like, no, no, you're not. We were, right. yeah. And they, we had a certain trust in human nature will somehow naturally, inevitably, fill these technologies with our, you know, emergent goodness. Yes. You know, and yes. Yes. And we didn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't completely aware. Well, nothing was proprietary. Nothing was closed. The internet was a place where you had to sign an agreement saying you weren't going to do a business just to go on there. Yeah. I mean, AT&T didn't even want the internet. They were offered it because right. they, right. they thought there was no commercial purpose. So it seemed like right. this was just right. team co-op good people. Yes, and yeah. I think that's one one of the many things that fueled the optimism. And that's one of the things that I fear that we have lost at our peril is the the optimism, the our capacity for awe and wonderment and that this is these are still the subversive forces and that there were so many of us that were imbued with this heady optimism. And then it's really interesting to to look at how things evolved with the magazine as a business and then how things turned and how my, you know, the scales fell from my own eyes and I saw who I was sitting with on the ship and realizing, oh, we are not sailing right. in the same direction. 
And, and was, there, was there a moment of, of disillusionment and then you just left or what? Oh, I wish we had time for me to <laughs> tell my exit story because it's kind of like, oh, it did, it actually did get to a point where it, it was so, um, it was so distasteful, uh, the money that was coming in, the, the middle-aged white guy techno-libertarianism the overcultureness that was coming in and it did become troubling and yeah. now you you subvert corporations from the yes. inside yes i do right now that's always you know and i've had i've had people on the show and i always little suspicious you know because it's like you know when people say oh well i go in you know well, i've gone into new balance or nike or something and i've convinced them to do this and i'm there but i'm actually a double agent for the good guys and all that and if I could, if I could get away with that somehow, then I've got too much, I don't know, rabbinic Jewish guilt or something. <laughs> I can't, I just can't go. If I could just do one advertising campaign and then even feel like I laced something in there, I'd have so much money to feed my child and all that. Um, but I just can't, I can't, uh, I can't go there. And it's partly because, you know, um, uh, and it was right around the same time that we're talking in the, in the late 80s when uh, Matt Groening, got the offer from Fox right. to put The right. Simpsons, even on, uh, I don't know if it was for the whole show or just the Tracy Ullman part, right. he was really freaked out. And Gary Panter, the artist, wrote this manifesto at the time. You can see it on Wikipedia where he said it's okay to take the money because you're going to go in and create the content and subvert the whole thing. And now I kind of want to ask Matt Groening that he sees Fox News, what he funded with his Simpsons, was it worth it? In other <laughs> words, did Kawabunga create a, a, enough cultural resistance to compensate for, you know, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I don't know, but that's a bit. So, so there's, so just as a way of saying it, that's, that's my frame on it. That's my fear of yes. how do we know when we go in that we're, we're, are we are we undermining the toxic male whatever of the company or are we just giving it more intelligence on how to pretend like it's oh. satisfying us? Oh, that's a really good, really good point. Um, but I guess it's really, to, to, in, in fairness, you should explain with kind of what kind of thing do you do or what's an, what's an example of going in somewhere and then like kind of flipping the script on them? Yeah, um, well, let's see. I have, I think because of my, my shamanic training, I've gone through, you know, formal shamanic training, um, creative training, uh, all these other, um, whether it's actual school or learning on the job or m being mentored by folks and being taught various techniques. I've put all of those together and have worked for two national innovation consultancies for about the last decade. And part of what we do is we go into Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies, and we help them solve, their, they've hit a roadblock, and we're gonna come in and help them solve a problem. And we bring a lot of creative juice in with us and a lot of creative principles and 21st century principles. And for some folks, this might be the, the first time they've ever been in a collaborative ideation session or you know, with those kinds of uh, ideals. So I've done things of that nature and, then, um, and have bounced back and forth from working as a consultant and a free agent, very literally, um, uh, to you know, working for the man, working on the inside. And, and it is a very difficult uh, tightrope to walk. And 
a day does not go by that I don't have that gut check and ask myself the questions that you and I've talked about that you were, you just articulated. And this is the part of me that it's so difficult to circle that square of we need to, there's, we're, we, when I say we in this case, I mean my, my beloved and I, like we have decided to live enough in the overculture that we have a mortgage, we have bills to pay, things are getting more difficult. And this is speaking as a, you know, I'm a privileged white woman. I'm not affluent. Privileged, yes. No, everybody's get, it's getting precarious for everybody. Now. It's getting yeah. precarious for everybody. And as an activist who, I, you know, I've done a lot of work in racial justice, social justice, you know. So there is that, okay, I can say without it being a rationalization yeah. that I am going in and I am changing from within. And I was, uh, Doug and I have talked about, um, so as Doug mentioned earlier, he worked at Mondo and Brenda Laurel, was um, was connected to Monto in, in interesting right. ways. Right, Brenda was one of the original Atari designers. She wrote a book called Computers as Theater, and then she was at Interval. She And she had a game company, a short-lived but well-intentioned um, company, Video Games for Girls. Yes, and we uh, did amazing Purple groundbreaking Moon. stuff. Yeah. It was so fun. Right, and she's all witchy and, you know, yeah. in, the, in that way. Yeah. But, but and this was where we, we, as we were doing this work, came up with the phrase that I still live by, which is our job, and I mean this as an hour, that our job is to introduce the change agent into the cultural body without activating its antibodies. That is how the change begins. And so Jennifer and I were talking just before the show about that debate, you know, of, okay, let's switch over to the, uh, the category of Buddhism, say, or, or any kind of ascetic or spiritual practice. Is it easier to retreat from the world to a monastery and live there? Is that more difficult, or is it more difficult to use some Harry Potter language? Is it more difficult to live in the muggle world and to mix story metaphors, to live in the muggle world and plug yourself into the matrix and know that you're plugged into the matrix, but still work every day to bring that change agent resonance into the cultural body. Right, and I guess, it, and it depends on how you do it. So yes. when I, early on, I got asked to do a talk at uh, Leo Burnett. Oh, and this yes. This was in the 90s. Yes. And I was still, you know, I'm never going to sell out. I'm never going to be a yuppie scum. Die all you <laughs> horribles. And I was like, right. look, I'll go talk if I can talk about anything I want. And they said, sure, sure. And they would give me a lot of it, like $5,000. It was something incredible. And, and so I went to Chicago, and I did a talk called Why You Should Quit the Advertising Business for 500 <laughs> Leo Burnett, whatever, employees. And after I was done, a week later, I got two emails from employees who quit. Who quit, yeah. But, I mean, they could see me, but just to talk about non-stealth, they can see me coming, you know, miles away. Oh, here comes Rush Cup. Almost they'll have me talk there as proof that they can tolerate, you know, uh, someone who's coming and, 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 do you know what I mean? They all want, yes. they want to be yes. uh, uh, berated in a way. It's, it's a bizarre ritual. And I'm sure I'm helping them continue what they do, right? We accepted our lashes from Rushkoff. Now we can go back to stealing, to putting cotton candy jewels in the lunch boxes of middle school children. Uh, but, but I will, but I, that's, I, don't, I don't even want to interrupt this role. It's like, no, just keep going. But I, 
I want to say that one of the things that I'm one of the things that I'm doing now, and one of the things that is a through line of what I've been doing that gets to not only the some of the topics that you write so beautifully about in Team Human, which is the most fantastic book. If you oh. have not purchased it and read it, this is a must read. And I'm not getting paid to say this. This is because it is. I can pay you later. You, okay, excellent. All right, perfect. I'll get paid in drink coupons. Um, no, but that one of the things that I think is most subversive beyond optimism, beyond holding to hope, beyond remembering to stay absolutely connected to imagination. That's one of the many things that's, that, that the overculture has atrophied and we have allowed our own imaginations to atrophy, but the building of actual connections. So one of the things that I'm doing right now is putting an agency in turnaround and the best and most powerful way, and I, and I have proof points from you know, recent experience. Uh, I've also tried a similar thing to what I'm doing now at another agency and was fired for that for the first time in my life, um, bringing 21st century ideals into a company that said it was ready for that, but in practice was like, oh, no, what are you doing? No, you provoked no. the antibodies. Exactly. I, I came in a bit too strong. But, no, I think that... So, but that you believe, though, that... that, that even in their current structure, that the Fortune 100 companies are worth somehow injecting with, you know, the, the, the virus of Wiccan transformation, right? And that, you know... Everybody that, should be. Right, no, and, that, and that they're, even if they're structurally incapable of fostering humanity or nature right now, that they maybe even structurally they can change, that they become, un, uh, they, that they get off the growth paradigm, that they decide that oh they can gosh, right, right size. That or, they can right size. Well, I think, here's what I would say to that. I'm very conflicted because as someone who's very anti-capitalist, because it's, what we have now is predatory capitalism. And, uh, and I am absolutely adamantly against that. So it's very difficult. I'm hearing your question, and it's an excellent question. And there is a part of me that believes that these models absolutely have to die. They absolutely must die. And that our job is to create the new structures as the old ones are disintegrating. And I've been using this metaphor of, like, if you think about the... Um, uh, Indiana Jones movie, the very first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the whole intro where it, there's like the skull and the sandbag, and I feel like if we were to reverse that, right, and the golden skull is the culture that we can co-create, there is still time. Not a lot of time, but there is still time for us to do this work. And so that's the golden skull, and the rotting world, this corporate world, is the sandbag. And we're doing the reverse switch, right? Where it's like, okay, we're going to weight this about the same and make that switch. So I don't, I don't necessarily think... I would, it would not be a true statement for me to say, oh, these corporate companies deserve to survive. But the companies are made of people. Companies are driven by people. If we remember the humanity and that there are people like you going to that talk and you got a couple emails, people heard you. There are people who are receiving the signal. And this is one of the things that I think is so important in our work. Another thing that's incredibly subversive is literally to look up, look up from your screens. 
turn, turn the noise off and get back into your body. Remember that these relationships that we build, as soon as we can get back into our bodies and uh, practice actual collaborative models of working together, of team building, of co-creation, of flattening hierarchy, of that it really does, I'm seeing it right now with my team, and, and how much that doesn't just change the work product, that doesn't just change the art we're making, it changes how people feel, and it changes how people feel with one another, and then to you, excuse me for using the, this language, but you get a resonance shift. There is a palpable shift in energy, and that to me, like the, these are our original digital devices, that to me is the original internet. That is, this is what we need to hook back up. And our bodies know the way. We, our bodies are automatically connected to nature and the natural world. I believe that Gaia, the natural world, is screaming at us. She has been screaming at us for a long time and that what we are supposed to be feeling right now is acute discomfort. Because evolution, the way evolution works, unfortunately in this, in the physics of this universe, we don't get to evolve from a place of comfort. That the most radical shifts happen in acute discomfort. So sometimes I wonder if the acute discomfort I often wonder, is the acute discomfort that has been engendered by capitalism and these corporations that we are all in some way, shape, or form helping to keep afloat, are those the, the very things that, that we need to just, we do need to, we, we have to create an absolute energetic resonance shift. Right. In or that. at the very least, even, even, you know, even without full-on resonance, if you've got you know, human beings in a room actually bearing witness to one another. Yes. In, in, in an intimate way. way, it becomes a lot harder to just do total evil to children exactly. somewhere else because exactly. they see what I'm doing. That's you know? right. And my body, whether you're, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, and any of us knows the truth of this, that whether we are aware of it or not, I'm picking up signals constantly. This is the most, this is the original digital device. This is the most advanced antenna. These bodies that we are in, the earth that we inhabit, these are incredibly sophisticated tools. And I find it so interesting and troubling that we've taken that truth and transferred it into these artificial creations and imbued those creations with the truth that our physical bodies and the earth has. Right. Yeah. And once we douse ourselves with enough 5G electromagnetic oh. radiation, we're not going to be able to feel <laughs> shit. Um, but so I've got to let you go. You're going to come back. Yes, Thank you, Blake Spence. Yes. For sure. Yes. And all you do. She will be back for a little session at the end. And right now, our second guest, Jennifer Rauch, is best known for her blog and her new book, Slow Media, Why Slow is Satisfying, Sustainable, and Smart. Such sibilance. She was a real journalist before becoming a professor of communications and journalism at Brooklyn and here in Portland. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Good, thank you for playing for Team Human. Yeah. 
Oh, I love this quote. In a landscape where infinite acceleration has become the default way of developing technology, doing business, and running an economy, Jennifer Rauch sees a growing number of people pushing back against the mandate to scale. Here is an compelling, this is about the book, which is for sale right now back there. Here's a compelling argument for why less is more and how media can once again promote human existence more proportioned to human beings. I mean, that's been wow, the whole, that says is. the whole thing it is. that I'm trying to say. And that was my blurb of your book. <laughs> you yeah, know? in case you couldn't guess who would have said something so eloquent and <laughs> but, brilliant. But I read your book and I was like, oh, wow, you actually said this. You know, yeah. and you and pulled so much of it together from, you know, from not just, I mean, uh, you, different books do it differently. One will blame corporate capitalism. One will blame, oh, digital technology. One will blame uh, uh, you know, the environmental impact. One will blame the political economy of media. And you kind of very briefly showed how that's all part of the same phenomenon. Yeah, and really my focus in the book isn't on the problem, because I think we all know what the problem is. A lot of people are talking about the problems from different directions. What was interesting to me about slow food and about the idea of slow media is that you know, there's a solution out there um, that mm. the slow food movement has been around for, you know, 20, 30 years now. And it's really transformed the way a lot of people grow and buy and eat food. Um, I know I grew up in the 70s eating a mm. lot of canned fruits and vegetables. And by comparison, today we live in this golden age of food. And a lot of us enjoy the fruits of that, but we don't necessarily realize that there was this organization called Slow Food that had a big hand in helping mm -hmm. it happen, or that there was a theorist, one of the founders of Slow Food named Carlo Petrini, who actually like came up, came up with concepts and theories that drove the, their practices and that you know influence everything we put into our mouths today. That to the point where, if we wanted to, we could eat a local, artisanal, organic, sustainable diet all day, every day, you know, in some places in, in this country, obviously not everywhere. Right. I mean, well, big agra right now is kind of pushing the, I won't call it a myth, let's for now call it the story that somehow what they're doing by turning soil into dirt and, and growing the way they do, that that's more efficient, that it feeds more people with less hectares of whatever. Um, yeah, although that's not true. Right. We're growing plenty of food. We're actually destroying a lot of food. The problem is distribution. It's getting the food from the places where it's grown to the people who need it. And that's really a political and an economic issue. It's not a technical issue. And fast food, not I mean fast food McDonald's, although I guess I do too, but, yeah. but fast food or fast growth or, or uh, uh, maximizing yield for the market ends up destroying the topsoil and everything else. Yeah, and fast food is the perfect metaphor. I mean, that's what slow food was playing against, the idea of McDonald's and industrial production of food and the destruction of healthy, traditional, you know, foodways. Um, and that transfers to the way that we think about media, too. I mean, especially today in the era of fake news and fast news, that, um, you know, the reason that a lot of our news is so terrible is because it's being built by these global sort of, you know, industrial corporations who aren't motivated by taking care of the local places where people use their product. You know, it's about extracting resources um, and following this growth dictate. Right. And their product isn't even the products that they're serving anyway. I mean, yeah. their product is usually their stock. Yeah. You know, so they just want to make that go up and externalize the damage to... The yeah. humans are supposedly serving. Exactly. Versus, you know, the slow food model, which is 
based on the idea of knowing your farmer, that the people who make your food are your neighbors and that they live in the same community as you. They're, they're embedded in your, own, your local economy. They care about the well-being of you know, their fellow human beings who live in that neighborhood as well as the, the earth that they're you know, extracting things from. Um, so that if you take all of those ideas and transplant it to the world of media, the way that we produce and consume not only news, but you know, music and uh, all kinds of other forms of ideas, you know, what would it mean if our media systems were embedded locally and if they were produced by people that we knew? If we knew our journalists um, and worked with them in networks to, to produce and consume news together? I mean, there used to be like local broadcasters that weren't parts of giant things. There was terrestrial, KXRY, all right? There's local community. Yeah. It's funny, we call it terrestrial now. I love that. <laughs> terrestrial radio as opposed to like space radio. But it is space radio, you know? It's generic space radio, you know, coming from a, a, a air-conditioned computer in Arizona or something. and you know, clear channeling out to the rest of the world. And it's not just terrestrial, yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of slow media is not saying that like, oh, everything digital is bad, like everything fast is bad. You know, what kind of world would it be in if we just used print and analog? You know, this isn't like a Luddite thing where we're all gonna right. like, you know, go live in the woods or something. Um, but that there are complementariness, that we're really trying to, all of us would benefit, and most of us want and realize that we want, a permaculture where we have access to diverse ideas and diverse media um, that, you know, we don't only want X-ray to be available terrestrially because that limits its audience. You know, by podcasting it, now it can reach everybody all over the world. Or we can have a face-to-face -face event like this, you know, that people can hear, right. I hear ideas in person if they want to. Or they can read our books. You know, that all forms of media, like, have a role to play and that the, they, they enrich our lives by having all of these things together and not just having to make this false choice. Right, but the, the problem is that, you know, the way the, 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 well, the size of certain corporations allows them to create a, a, a digital or media monoculture. Yeah. But then, you know, it's sort of a political economy problem where when five companies or now three or two own 90% of the media space, there's not room for this sort of flourishing of little bottom-up, yeah, and there are people who want to do it. So, you know, there's, there's kind of an audience problem, and a lot of people are starting to address this, especially, again, going to the fake news, that they realize, well, if we just support whatever news is cheap and convenient and, you know, m might taste delicious, um, but we know isn't good for us, that that's ultimately not good for us as individuals or for our society or for our culture, you know? So like we have to exercise our agency a little bit and not just say, well, uh, oh, this is the structure we're born into and there's nothing we can do about it. We can, you know, we can join the uh, local community radio station. We can support public broadcasting. We can pay for our news, you know? Right. Um, if McDonald's were free, we would probably eat a whole lot of it and not be very healthy. You know, the fact that a lot of the media that we consume is free encourages us to use it maybe out of laziness or out of, you know, cheapness yeah. trying to pinch pennies, but at the end of the day, it's not doing us right. any good. Well, when we're getting free media through the surveillance economy, right. you know, we end up getting it, it's almost like your, your, your Apple news feed or something. It reminds me <laughs> of, it reminds me of, um, when I was a kid, I saw Jerome Robbins Broadway. It was this musical review and it was all the, 
final production numbers of every Jerome Robbins musical. It's like, bam, <laughs> kick line, bam, kick line, bam, kick line. And that works, it's like Apple News, that's sort of the fast media, right? It's the, this story, that story, this story, and the stuff that you don't read, that you don't click on, ends up just kind of algorithmically fading away. Yeah. And when you don't pay for your media, you're the product, right? Like right. they say. At best. <laughs> I wish at least I would, at least if I was, I, I feel I'm not even the product anymore. Yeah. I'm just like the carcass around the real product, <laughs> you know, of data. You know? I mean, do we really want to be seen as eyeballs and wallets, you know? We're, we're, we're so much more than that. But we need to step up and, and play so. a role. Right. We're acting like eyeballs and wallet, wallets, and we shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the... One of the uh, things that you know, I was advocating for since the, the 90s and you wrote about in the book too, is um, taking some kind of a digital Sabbath. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's a great, I mean, it's great to retrieve religious sort of values because these people thought of great stuff. You know, the Israelites in the, in the mythical desert after Egypt, first thing they give themselves is like this one-seventh rule. Right? Let's take, and they didn't even have digital back then from what I know of, but they still knew about, you know, getting... They knew about work, right? right? And media is work. For a lot of us, work is media, too. The interesting thing for me is that um, tech criticism has kind of shifted, that in the 90s, it was a lot of people who didn't really know a lot about technology, um, and it was easy to sort of, you know, dismiss their opinion, saying, well, like, this person has never used a computer. They refuse to touch email. Why should right. we listen to them about the effects of digital media on lives and brains? But nowadays, most of the people who are most vocal about saying like, hey, digital culture is kind of screwed up, is people like yourself and Blade and a lot of other people who have talked on Team Human who know digital culture intimately. They not only understand how the devices work, but they also understand how it affects people psychologically, how it's all tied up with uh, political economy and um, you know, lobbyists and, and money and things like this. So, you know, now I think that when people are skeptical of what tech companies are doing to us or what technology is doing to us, it's coming from a very informed perspective. I mean, the, one of the problems I run into when I talk about, like, digital Sabbath or getting off Facebook or just not participating is they'll say, oh, well, that's an elitist argument. In other words, um. you can say that you can take a day off the Internet. I you know, we can't afford that. Yeah, and that's a problem. We <laughs> should address the problem. You know, it's the, it's the cause, not the symptom. Um, the cause is that people are too freaking busy and have to work too hard to get by in this world. Um, and even us, even if people who are fairly secure face that problem that, you know, we're stressed out. There was a survey recently that, like, most Americans don't like their jobs, that they would leave their jobs if they thought they could get another equivalent one someplace else. So it's like we're, people are intensely unhappy. It's not just media's fault, but it's, you know, this time crunch. Um, and to some extent, that's contributing to people being misinformed, that they maybe don't pull the best lever when they go into the ballot box because they don't really understand how the world works. You know, maybe some people want to blame them and say, oh, it's just because they zone out at the end of the day watching entertainment. Well, I don't blame them. You know, if you worked their jobs, you would probably just want to, like, turn your brain off at the end of the day, too. I know there was this, uh, uh, the, the book reminded me of this commercial that was around, it must have been in the 80s from uh, AT&T. And they were showing these sort of technology scenarios of the future. And they would say, you know, show something and they would say, you will, oh. you know. <laughs> and one of the things was like some person was on a beach and they get like an email from work and they fill out a little thing and they send and then they put it back down. And they showed that as if that's a good thing. Because you're on the beach on vacation, but you can still respond 
to work, yeah. right? But the reality of it is this, this, and you write about it so well, this sort of professionalization of all of our time. They've, they've colonized our life our, worlds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and this ad is, the, the flip side of that dream is being advertised today with beer commercials where people are you know, laying on the beach drinking their beer and their phone rings and they can turn it off. Like that's our vision of the good life now that we know what it means to have a smartphone on vacation with you. Yeah. Right. That, you know, we're like the Maytag guy with the, with the beeper, except it's just always, always on. You know? To get back to the point about privilege, too, is, you know, this is a, a constant criticism of, of slow food is that it's elitist, that it's pretentious, um, that only, you know, rich people can afford to eat that kind of food. But it was actually founded um, to promote kind of peasant foods and like foods of the people. Mm. So, you know, it can go either way. Like, maybe it is a little bit elitist, but it's also not elitist, and it doesn't have to be elitist. Same thing with slow media. People say, like, oh, well, you know, who, who can afford to not use their, their digital devices? Um, who can afford to buy all these vinyl records instead of just listening to things, you know, cheap on Spotify? But, you know, you can, you can, if you're creative, you can find a way to engage with these things pretty cheaply. That thrift stores and yard sales and... You know, Freegan and Craigslist are full of a lot of print and analog media that you can get, like, cheaper or free. Um, and libraries, you know. If you want to engage with DVDs instead of streaming Netflix, which, you know, as we all know, uh, streaming has horrible effects on, on the planet, that uh, the streaming of digital media is one of the largest growing uses of, uh, of electricity. It has, you know, a lot of uh, pollution aspects to it. Right, um, and that's, you know, technologically. You're not just yeah. watching TV. You know, you're, you're hitting on servers that are, that are... Yeah, right. It's all these data yeah. servers and server, server farms, and everything is redundant on top of all of the devices that we're constantly throwing away. Um, versus right, because it's the same internet that used to take 20 minutes to download one JPEG. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the line, it's the same packet-based internet that they fooled into delivering Netflix at, you yeah. know, 4K. I, I always yeah. imagine what it would be like today if we still had to pay by the minute for accessing the internet. You know, if we had to ration it. Um, I actually did an experiment in this where I gave myself, I, I totally went cold turkey on digital media. I gave myself one hour a week to use, or one hour a month to use internet, cell phone, anything. Uh. Um, and you use that hour really carefully. And I was always glad every month when I got the new hour, but like the things that you really, 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 really need the internet or digital media for, it was a short list a few years ago when I did it, but nowadays you can't even park without an app, so, you know, it'd be a little harder to do now. Right, that <laughs> glorious internet of things. Right. I've yeah. never felt more thing-like in, yeah. my, in my life. <laughs> yeah. So the, the resistance. I mean, or opposition. As I like to put it. Yes. Um, can we make that cool with the kids, right? Are kids so inured to, to all this or they don't really see that they're the, the algorithmic victims of these companies? Or um, how do we, or can we make slow media like a form of rebellion? I'm trying to. I mean, that's my goal in this whole thing is to yeah. like get a counterculture going again, you know? Like would the 60s have happened if people were plugged into their media? You know, if, if they had entertainment at home that they could, you know, just like sit and, and stare at screens all day, would they have been out protesting or having sit-ins or anything? Um, it's a, a problem now with a lot of modern activism, of course, is clicktivism and the idea that people think that they can make a difference by, you know, just staying on the internet and not actually making eye contact with strangers or going out in public if it's raining and that kind of thing. 
Um, so I'm hopefully trying to make it cool. And I know that there are a lot of kids who are getting on board with this, that, you know, vinyl is having a comeback, although some would, argue, some would argue that it never really went away, that it just kind of didn't get publicity for a while. It Z- went somewhat away, we know, because the, the vinyl making machines are really scarce now. Yeah. You know, you've got to wait a long time to get your record they're printed. Making them, they're making them again now. Yeah. They've, the, yeah, the tech uh, machine manufacturers have caught up with that trend. And they're you starting would argue to finally. It's not just because it's slower, though. It's that analog does do something that the digital doesn't. Yeah, it engages different parts of your brain and your body. You know, it engages more of your senses. Even think about like listening to an album from start to finish, you know, the ritual of putting it on, the, the level of deep listening or slow listening that you put into it, um, that you, you get more out of an experience when you're focused like that. And the album experience from beginning to end that, you know, the musician designs this experience, a sequence of, of songs for you. So you're starting to, I mean, and not in a bad way, but you're starting to sort of frame music as a sacred activity. Yeah, exactly, yeah. A lot of slow media is really about ritual. You know, our use, in our use of digital media, we like to think of it as making us more productive, but is it? Right, increasing our utility value somehow. Yeah, exactly. You know, but there's this whole other dimension of experience that isn't just about being more efficient. You know, we aren't the machines. Um, and we think of our lives in terms of, like, how fast we can produce things and how much we can produce. Um, and that's really kind of internalizing this Taylorism logic. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I, I mean, I'm guessing that's why you decided to then to like go get a PhD and become learned, right? I mean, because your, your, your book, it's really easy to read, but it's obviously, it's embedded with Marx. It's embedded with the Frank, Frankfurt group. It's embedded with, you know what I mean? It's embedded with, the, with the, the sort of academic rigor that you've been through, but you then you kind of uh, uh, metabolize it for us. Yeah. And I mean, for me, starting out as a journalist writing for a general audience where your intent is like to be able to communicate effectively with people, you know, academic writing was kind of a shock with few exceptions, you know, like yourself. You know, it's hard to keep your academic writing, your, your, your style alive when you're trying to be, you know, intensely theoretical in a lot of cases. You know, so with this book, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking of myself as a translator. There, there are a lot of people who are doing really interesting scholarly work in this field, but like, I can barely read it, you know? And I spent 20 years in, in college. Um, and I don't want anybody else to have to, to suffer the firsthand experiences of reading these right. things that I have. You know, so I'm kind of like trying to translate it and say like, look, there are these really cool ideas. Um, even the Carlo Petrini, I mean, he's, you know, this relatively uh, accessible figure, but his writing is pretty dense. Right. So I try to capture, like, sort of his main points um, and, and relate them to media. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The, the academic tribe really doesn't approve of that. I mean, I remember <laughs> they actually hated Neil Postman because he wrote in a way that regular people could read. And if regular people can, can read yeah. it, right, it, it means that it must not be that smart. Right, yeah. You know, and that's just... That's caca. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're trying to influence, like... Okay. Smart. No. Eloquent. Yeah. You're, you're trying to influence the world and have an effect right. on, you know, the way people think or the way they live their lives, you know. Uh, talking, preaching to the converted isn't necessarily going to expand the idea. I mean, I'm interested in, in this, this, the way that the culture of speed, the, w- the way it makes us think in terms of our utility value rather than some essential value. And I get in trouble with smart people when I say that humans might have some essential value or some innate (laughs) dignity because they say, oh, that's essentialism. 
So then I look up essentialism yeah, as if it's sure like a bad thing or something. And it doesn't sound so bad that yeah. I think there's something essential, but is that is it is it kind of like academically improper to believe that we're special in some way or depends who you ask. You know, there there are different little cliques out there and some will say yes and some will say no. Um, I'm one of the no's. Um, right. You know, and I, I think that there is this whole, you know, dimension of experience that lays beyond producing things, that lays beyond just doing things quickly um, or quantification. You know, so that's one of the reasons that I'm really into unplugging and digital detox and that kind of stuff is um, because it sort of says, you know, it, it creates a, a time and a space where you can enact different values. Um, rather than just, you know, criticizing, oh, the way the world works, you can actually create this, this little boundered place where you, you can pretend you live in a different world and hopefully bring that back uh, with you. I mean, to use, you know, M McLuhan likes to tell this story about, you know, being stuck in a whirlpool and you're, you're just being, like, swept away, and that's the way I feel when I'm on the Internet, you know, that you're just sort of, like, going with the flow and it's all kind of, you know, washing over you, but you don't have any control, and the faster that you try to swim away, you know, the, the, fa the more it's going to get its hold on you. Um, but McLuhan's I idea is that you have to, like, mentally distance yourself from the whirlpool and sort of see it for what it is, and that maybe, you know, by not reacting emotionally, by thinking rationally about it, by having this critical detachment, you know, you can find a way out. And for me, unplugging is kind of that. It's creating, you know, this d detachment from the digital world um, that you can sort of see it for what it is, but then you can jump back into it, feeling, you know, recharged, rejuvenated. And I actually, right. I don't love words like unplugging or digital right. detox because they have this, this negative connotation to them that, um, you know, it's like this bad thing that you're trying to avoid. Um, and when I have my students do experiments in this, they actually, it creates this void where you're like, oh, it's just all about these things that you can't do. Instead of telling a positive story that like, wow, you know, this isn't a day where you can't use smartphones. This is a day where you get to, you know, use different parts of your brain. You can make art or music. You can, you know, hang out with your friends and your family face to face. Go to the museum, you know, engage with nature. Take a walk in the woods. There are a million things that you can do with your life. Right, um, untethered and unshackled. Yeah. Right. But the way that most of us deal with the sense of uh, uh, lack of control is through multitasking or triple tasking. Yeah. So we'll triple thread it. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> so I don't like doing my email, but if I do my email while I watch Netflix, while I write my article, then I'm in command here. Yeah. You know? And when you talk about fast, I don't even have to go fast. If I'm doing three things at once, it's automatically fast, yeah. right? And we all know the research on that, that it's basically all these chemicals in our body that are telling us, like, adrenaline and cortisol that, you know, like, oh, and dopamine, you know, we're doing awesome, we're getting so much done. But that if you actually look at it, studies show that you're, people who think that they're super effective when they're multitasking are actually less effective than people who are monotasking who report feeling ineffective. You know, so the chemicals are like duping us, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's true with all these, <laughs> you know, with like the, the E-Trade and Charles Schwab, these interfaces they use for traders, you know, they make them look like you're some kind of power trader with a giant terminal and they do more and more trades and they do margin calls and all that kind of stuff and they're all losing a ton more money than people <laughs> who have, you know, the less less access you give people really to their money, the kind of the, the oh, better yeah. they save. But I believe but, it. But right, this sort of the illusion of technological control actually creates the opposite, the opposite or effect. activities for activity's sake, you know, is, is, a, is supposed to be a good. And maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe reflection and not acting is going to help you get further. Stillness. I mean, now boredom has luxury. Right, yeah.
the tortoise and the hare, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so at the end of the book, you actually do, and which is rare these days, you give specific advice to what, what, what people could do. And I'd like to end this conversation with, with, those, with those, I don't know if you remember them. Sort of you had four main, it looked like four main ideas. Oh, maybe you can remind me, yeah. Uh, so one is uh, basically increasing your analog and print yeah. use. Which seems easy enough. Yeah. Um, so you buy the newspaper instead of read it? Yeah, and I think thing? of it as being sort of like bilingual. There's all this uh, research on, on the way the reading brain works, and they say that, you know, uh, reading things on the page, on a printed page, is good for your brain, that the, the essential activity, the cognitive activity, is different from when you skim something on a screen. Um, so that it's good for your brain to exercise both sets of muscles. Um, and I also can say it's like being bilingual or you know, even bicultural, that it enriches your life to have these two different sets of resources to draw on. Right, I don't know, for, for me, reading on the page, I have a spatial awareness. I tend to remember it better because yeah. it was this is where it was. Yeah, research backs that up. Yep, I know. And they, and, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and and it's not your imagination. No, it's real. Um, it's real. God damn it. Um, you also say use digital media in slow ways. So what's a slow way of using the net or something? Um, yeah, I mean, part of this is like the mindful media idea that um, has been catching on in a lot of tech companies. They're bringing in consultants to you know teach people how to do this. A lot of it is actually about having empathy such as you know, before you send an email, take a moment to think about putting yourself in the shoes of the person who's receiving that email and how they would think, and, or pausing before you send an email. Like When somebody sends you a message, take some time to think about it. Don't just like shoot off an answer. How many times have we shot off an answer and then five minutes later thought, oh, damn, why did I say that? Well, you can set Google give you undo, <laughs> undo time, you know, for those drunk sends. Yeah, if, yeah. If, you, if, you move, if you move fast enough, you can't but what pause, if you right. don't? Yeah. You can't pause yourself. You need to be nudged to pause, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, handling email more slowly. Um, Checking your phone less often, checking your email less often, turning off some of your notifications. You really need to know every time you get an email or can it wait a half hour or an hour? I mean, uh, if you want to get on the productivity tip, a lot of the, the productivity people say that you should check your email, you know, once at the end of the morning, once at the end of the afternoon, that that's plenty. I mean, but the other point here is that um, we all live in these really complicated, you know, idiosyncratic media matrices that you know, our, the social expectations of how we use media are different for all of us. It depends on our jobs. It depends on whether we have kids. So a lot of it, you know, is respecting the diversity of other people's media use um, and being more empathetic. Right. And then the, the last two was uh, reduce use of fast media and reduce all media. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if Which you're is fun. Reduce all media is like my favorite one. I know. So really, how much better is it that you're, you know, if you spend your day staring at books instead of staring at a screen, you're not really making a huge difference in the quality of your life. Right. Um, Cervantes would argue yeah, so the same thing. Yeah. You're still kind of experiencing things secondhand. You know, mm -hmm. get out there in the world and talk to people and go places and see things. I mean, maybe that's the journalist in me that it's about, you know, uh, participant observation and, and not well, taking that's people... old school journalism. Yeah, though. not taking... Uh, yeah. it's, it's making a comeback, yeah. though. There's, there's actually a slow journalism or slow news movement that's trying to bring some of this back as a correction to you know, the news environment that we're living in now that is having dubious effects on our sanity. Yeah, I know, I just love that they call like long form journalism is like longer than 300 words. Yeah, like, you know? yeah. 
and a lot of slow journalism, you know, it's, it's sort of this new thing that's in vogue, but um, it's bringing back a lot of these old values, like the New Yorker. You know, that's been slow journalism for 100 years now. Yeah, and we're bringing back, it, 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 it's important that, that, to understand that your work, I mean, you even talk a little about the Amish in there, who, yeah. you know, you grew up around, around, but it's not about going back, it's a matter of how are we retrieving values and embedding them in the future. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. so that, you know, in this forward momentum, like, not all change is necessarily good, you know, progress isn't necessarily always, like, doing some new thing, because we figured out a lot of things that do work, so let's not throw those babies out with the bathwater. Right, like agriculture yeah you know or and i was wondering <laughs> when the train would come it's now <laughs> that's the train yeah the portland train yeah oh is that what it's called no it's Am- <laughs> it might be amtrak shuttling between seattle and san francisco <laughs> passing us by yeah well hopefully it didn't stop yeah. right just let it keep, yeah keep through well thanks so much jennifer for all oh. you do and your book and sharing with us and I want to bring back Blade Spence. Thank you for being on and being on and defending and promoting the values of Team Human. Oh, my pleasure. Um, it really it 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 means a lot to me. And it was so it was really great. I mean, reading the book is just so many touch points. It's like, oh, this is. It was like you know you were kind of inside my mind. I love books <laughs> that do that. You know, I mean, Beckett did that to me at one point, too. You know, just, do you ever read someone that's just in your head, and the next thought you have then is the next thought that they come up with? That's this kind of book. You know, so, so did, you really, it, did it give you any hope? Because I feel like that's something that people really need in this day and age. Hope did. that things can change yes. and for the it, better. It yes, gave me absolutely. hope, but, but you know, I could see why some people, I mean, with my book, half the people find it totally hopeful and half the people find it totally pessimistic. So I think some people, people who can't recognize the power of human presence Mm. think that there's only bad tech in this book. You know what I mean? Or they're afraid of human presence, sadly enough. I mean, we've talked about this with a lot of our students. I was kind of horrified when I found out that this is something that happens, that um, students get notes from their doctors to excuse them from public speaking or or presentation assignments because it gives them too much anxiety. I haven't had that happen with any of my students. Every single semester I get more of them. Yeah. And it's really scary. I mean, to me, it's a problem of sort of K through 12 education yeah. that they're looking at tablets instead of learning how to be in a room mm. with people. Mm. Some people have yeah. said that those kind of social, so social skills are going to be key to Absolutely. success in careers from now on because they're becoming so rare. Absolutely. And what you were talking about in terms of empathy, that was one of the most disturbing things that I remember uh, watching in the very early days of the net and looking at how people spoke to one another and behaved and that shock of like, would you actually do this to a human being who was standing in front of you? And, <laughs> and, the, and the strangeness of how humans behave when you introduce anonymity and, and that we're still talking, it's empathy really does, that's, that's the kicker and that is what comes from these kinds of relationship building, pausing before you send an email, putting, like always thinking of the other, uh, the other not, not yourself, which is another very subversive idea in, in, yeah. the, in a media age where it's all me, me, me. It's the, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly always on camera. And if you can be empathetic, you might actually think like, wow, maybe this isn't something I should be saying in an email. Maybe I should be calling them or telling them face to face, especially, you know, 
If it's somebody who lives in your house with you or works in the same office building as you. Who's your spouse that yeah. you're <laughs> separating from. It's like, yeah. maybe it deserves a conversation. Yeah, but it's scary, you know, that, yeah. that live... That live presence. Because it's unpredictable. And I think that's something that has been a lie that digital technology has sown uh, within us that, you know, there's some way that we're we're in control. And there's a predictability about this. I can manage my presence. I can manage my digital footprint. I can manage how people perceive me. Whereas, actually, I mean, this is... This is also one of the things about getting um, getting back to real relationship, getting back into these receivers, getting connected again to to nature. That these these are the things that remind us what's important yeah. and how we think about others, and that it is all about unpredictability. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the surprises happen. And so, yeah, there's something. I think there's a fear of the analog. <laughs> whatever it might be, right? Yeah. Right. And you would argue, I suppose, that it's also the female that people are afraid of. Yes. I, I, I think that a great deal of the, of the problems that we're faced with right now go way back to the vilification of the sacred feminine. And that, you know, I, I'm about to make a, a sweeping generalization. <laughs> so I just know that I'm owning it as that. But I remember uh, this was when I was at Interval um, and uh, Paul Allen's uh, and Dave Liddell's think tank. And um, that in the aggregate, there was research that I can't, uh, I can't cite in this moment. But the thing that really stuck with me was this, this difference that... Um, when men interact with technology, and we might not think of this as literally men, we might think of it as the, the masculine within each of us. When that aspect of us interfaces with technology, the question is how? How can I build this thing? How can I, you know, th this is the magic that has given us suspension bridges or, <laughs> you know, steam engine locomotives, which is mind-blowing feats of engineering. And civilizations on Mars. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and 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 then the when the feminine interacts with technology the question is why why are we making this thing what and who is it going to serve and so the fact that we've dipped into such a masculine mindset that is all about the how and not about the why and not about the for whom which to me connects back up to empathy as well and how are we serving each other Maybe Neil Postman was a really empathetic, feminine-spirited person then because he has these questions too. You know, what is information for? You know, why do we need to have access to more and faster information? What are we going to do with this information? Right. How is it going to make our lives or the world better? Yeah. Right. I mean, and, yeah, and I still haven't answered ways, that question. <laughs> no. And even if it's not, you know, uh, expressly male-female, it does go back to sort of the, uh, the instrumentalization of everything yes. back in the Renaissance. You read yes. Francis Bacon and his understanding of science, which yes. he described science really through the rape metaphor. Yes. You know, that we're going to make nature submit to us like a woman grab her by the hair and hold her down it's like that's um, science yeah so yeah. that's sort of the, the the tradition of science and technology from the renaissance era and the whole industrial age forward yes. you know it's not like oh some big bad guy came and took our internet away it was just the this was the tradition of technological development but now we finally have a technology powerful enough and that that almost happened fast enough koyana Scotsi style mm, yes for us to see it you know in one turn of the cycle 
Yes. Why can't we just be, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I met yeah. with you know Joey Ito a couple of weeks ago at, oh, at yeah. MIT, yeah. and he said he's the head of the MIT Media Lab, and he said, you know, I think that we're just we're disparaging the hippies. He said, I want to bring back the hippies. Nice. There's, you know, that it was a. Uh, uh, it wasn't all bad. It, you know. No, they were sincere. Yeah. I know what I wouldn't give to interact with people that sincere on a daily <laughs> basis now. Yeah. 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 You know what? You know what I love too is a, a very, very important ally of my my husband's and mine. Uh, always points out that it, that there are plenty of of the best of the hippies around and they were they are just as she and you know and she's one of them and they are just as passionate as ever and they know what went wrong so this is the knowledge base that we can now mine of like yes i have plenty of ideas of what may have gone wrong and how we can get the right. ship back on course. Right. right? But that's one yeah. of our problems as a culture is we look forward, 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 forward. Yes. We don't look back. When we think about, you know, the, the crime of slavery, we imagine it through the metaphor of robots turning on us, not the slaves that we just had. You know, it's like it's so right there, but it's as if looking back at the, at the mistakes of others, well, they screwed it up. So forget that. Right. You know, right. barrel ahead. Right. And, and back to what you were talking about, uh, space colonization, you know, and, and looking forward. This is another thing where I, you know, I'm going to out myself on saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Personally, I think that we as a species should be grounded on planet Earth, literally and figuratively, until we figure our you-know-what out here before we take that poison and, and craziness and, you know, disperse it even wider. You know, I, I, I would like to think that we can take the lesson that we're being given here, the opportunity to really make some some significant leaps before we're like, nah, nah, we're done with that. It's all about Mars, you know? No, we've got a great thing going here. I mean, it's not perfect, but, you know, we can fix it if we want to. I mean, is this just like advertising telling us that, like, you mm. know, mm. we have all these flaws and that they can fix it, you know, making us feel insecure instead yes. of that we need to buy one more thing or another product or another service? Yeah, instead get one of more just like... like Get another friend. You know what? Yeah. Everything's pretty good. We're fine the way we are. Yeah. We just got to... <laughs> I say. Just give, just give me another shot of steroids and I'll be fine. Right? These ones are slowing down. Um, I've thought... I know we're, we're way late, but, um, but are there any thoughts from, from our esteemed audience here? Yes, sir. Hey Doug, uh, I was thinking a lot about what you said in the in the monologue. Um, I was thinking about uh, maybe it was a lamentation about uh, inauthenticity in reality TV, in television, and I guess now in social media. How do we reclaim and amplify authenticity? Mm. Where are you mm. looking for that, and where's mm. the panel looking for that? I mean, for me, I'm looking for it in face-to-face, -face, real life encounters you know that for me the conspiracy literally conspire means breathe together <laughs> yes. you know yeah. and yes. and if breathing together is a conspiracy then let's just do that mm. you know um mm. so for me that's that's where it starts i'm trying to learn there and i'd rather model not scale up from there but model uh, other other things based on that, like General Assembly and the Occupy movement mm -hmm. was people yep. meeting, forming consensus in a new way, and then Lumio then you know creates an, uh, a platform to allow larger groups of people to do that in digital spaces. But it was based on on the face to face. I mean, yeah. Where do you find the? 
Well, it's not on the internet. I mean, I think we've realized by now that the internet, you know, by and large, does not represent reality. Um, with you know some exceptions, there are some some islands of authenticity there. Mm. For me, I think the best chance we have. Uh, at authenticity is most likely the scariest because a lot of folks are either out of practice or because being authentic means really being true to oneself, knowing what we're feeling and being willing to take the risk to communicate that um, with, with our brothers and sisters to really talking about the real stuff. It's not about the likes. It's not about perception. It, it really is about what am I, what am I getting? What am I feeling? And I'm going to take the risk in, in, you know, putting my guts on the table. And, and what I would love is for us to create a web of connectivity that allows for the safety of those things to be shared so that I can now receive that truth and, uh, not from a place of defensiveness, from a place of, oh, and now I understand you better, and now I find a mirror in my own humanity. And it's going to take risk because that's, that's a lot of unpredictability. That's a lot of personal honesty. And I think there's a lot of that coming because it's going to be required for us to really solve the social problems that are so complex. Um, we, we are going to have to be okay being uncomfortable. And, yeah. and expressing how we really feel. I mean, feel. at the same time, I, th I think it's important that we not um, uh, too quickly judge others inauthentic because their authenticity doesn't read in whatever media mm. they're presenting in. Mm. So someone might look on, like, like look on television as inauthentic, and it's like, well, that's because you're on TV. They don't play well on TV. That's not their, that's not their natural media environment. So, you know, video killed the radio star, but the radio star didn't mm. work in print and the print person didn't work on the internet. And that's got to all be okay. It's going to have to start looking at what people are actually saying. Yes. Then and feeling it, you know, then, 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 then whether they're, they're pulling it off on, on their media. Thanks. Doug, you've talked about this figure ground reversal that keeps happening. We invent these amazing things agriculture, techno all our technologies, and then they like, they turn on us, or we allow them to turn on us. And I just was wondering if you had thoughts about why our team continues to allow that to happen, or why that pattern repeats. I mean, I think it's because we're not, a, a, until now, we haven't been aware of that pattern. I mean, and it repeated with language, with text, with money, with, Radio, with television, the internet, with uh, Bitcoin, with AI—it's going to keep keep happening, you know. So I think it's it 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 the 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 more uh, distractions from our humanity that we create, the more extensions. McLuhan talked about this. Every medium is an extension, but also an amputation. If you're not aware of that amputation, then then you can't really compensate for it, you know. And that's. You know why we all have to be media theorists, <laughs> <laughs> in some ways. But no, it's about you know ethical yeah. ethical technology. It's why we study study ethics. It's why you know Google should have hired a cultural anthropologist to evaluate whether they were not being evil rather than just using it as a, a slogan. And we wouldn't be in this. It wouldn't be the world's biggest advertising agency instead of uh, uh, an information network. Yeah. But we should do one more. One more. Hi there. Um, so we've talked about the lack of authenticity. We've talked about this switching of the figure and ground. We've talked about the problems. Where would you suggest everyone we look for the solutions? Blade, where would you look? 
Oh, that's such a big answer. I'm working on distilling my answer. First of all, that is excellent, and thank you so much for presencing that. The solutions, I think, get back to agency. Never forget your agency. Never forget the power of one voice. Never forget the power of the truth that is within you. Never forget the truth that is... Um, that, you, that we each walk with, that doesn't come from likes, it doesn't come from media, it doesn't come from any other extension, it comes from a knowing. Um, so I would say, um, I also think that, uh, that what we need to do more of is focus on what we want. We spend a lot of time, and the media is so, you know, so guilty about this for reasons that you, know, you both have written so eloquently about, but we spend a lot of time obsessing on what's wrong and talking about what's wrong, and that really just creates more of it. So I think we need to talk about what we want, and we need to really specifically envision what we want and infect each other with those scenarios so that it can spark our imaginations and set our hearts on fire, and we can go, yes, I want to do what you're doing. Let's make it, you know, let's create a subgroup, let's, you know. So that would be, th those would be some of my short answer. But. Yeah, I mean, there's an individual, you know, things that you can do, and there are collective things that you can do. And individually, it's just sort of exercising your agency, taking back control of your time, resisting or opposing people who are making unnecessary demands on you. Um, and you can experiment with your media use. For me, you know, that was a useful way of sort of taking stock of my life and how, you know, how I how I'm spending my precious time on Earth to one degree, but also how I'm interacting with other people um, through media, maybe to an unwise extent. Um, but the collective notion, too, is that like a lot of us don't free to take those kind of actions. We have to understand each other and kind of give each other more liberty and build some collective structures um, that will help us do what we need to do as individuals and, and to support each other. Yeah, I mean... A lot of times, I feel like I'm, I get asked to like create the team human organization, you know, the thing, so that we have somewhere to go. But there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Essentially, there are uh, uh, there are civic organizations in every town. There's a town hall. There's a school board. There's a land zoning group. If you don't have enough CSAs in your community, go to the land zoning group and 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 work on that. There's, I mean, sorry, there's it's it's slow, boring government <laughs> meetings in fluorescent lit rooms late at night with crazy smelly people. <coughs> But we, those, the, that's the one of the brilliances of of having developed a civic, uh, a civic reality. We still have it. We're just not. We're not there. It's as blank. Remember community public access television? Yeah. It's as blank. I always wondered why aren't people making shows? You got TV. You can make TV. You know. But I guess there wasn't money for it, or people didn't want it. People didn't inhabit that. Um, no, the the government is here for the taking. You know, and and and. So that's that's one, um, and I would start. You know, if you're if if you can start, totally local because yes. it's accessible. You can walk in and do that, yeah. um, and then you know the 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 mandate of the of, of it's around on the back of the book of, of of Team Human is find the others. 
You know, and find the others means first you're here. We found the others, right? This is this is this is why I I waste jet fuel and come someplace <laughs> to get people in a room. It's like this is your others. This is here we are, team human. I mean, but that's the first others. Then it means find the other, find the humanity in the kid wearing the MAGA hat. Find out where who is that that supposed other, you know, and once we can, you know, kind of uh, uh, rest ourselves from the ideologies that we don't even understand ourselves, because, I mean, who's read, actually read Marx? I mean, six of us probably. Um, <laughs> you know, but you, that, that, that they all want the same thing, they're all afraid of the same thing, that there they are human beings there, and once you can see the humanity in the MAGA hat kid, that MAGA hat kid is going to have a lot easier time seeing the humanity in the Mexican immigrant that he's currently being told is something less than human so um it's there but yeah but it's around it's there there's sunrise there's uh, extinction rebellion there are you know young people uh, and and old people who are are uh, committed to doing what is necessary to prevent species extinction not our own just our own but a whole bunch of species extinction so i think it's pretty easy to find i'm 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 hopeful that the opportunities are there. I, I do believe the window of opportunity is open. Humanity has the chance yes. to keep this party going for a whole lot longer if we choose to. And that's, uh, yeah. you know, let's, uh, let's choose that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> so thank you, Blade Spence, Jennifer Rausch, for playing for Team Human. Thanks to the Bunk Bar for hosting us, and especially Bim Dixon. For, for, well, for organizing this whole darn thing. Team Human's a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism. Thanks to KXRY for broadcasting our signal. Uh, any, yeah. Thanks to Annie Bloom's Books for selling our books. Uh, our, our community manager is Michael Bass. Our associate producer is Joshua Chapdelaine. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 